Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, what is socialism and why doesn't it work? You're listening to Frank Turek filling in for Dan Celia. Please pray for Dan. He's recovering from an illness. He's not here today. He won't be here this week. I'll be filling in today, tomorrow, and on Friday. Someone else will be here on Thursday. But since this is a show about financial issues, I thought today we'd talk about from 30,000 feet really the ultimate financial issue and that is what is the right economic system for a country to have is it socialism is it capitalism is it communism and as you know in our country in recent years people have become more and more interested and maybe accepting of something called socialism is that a good idea what is the history of socialism what are the assumptions of socialism does socialism work Now, I haven't read a much better book on economics than a book written by my friend Jay Richards. It's called Money, Greed, and God. Jay is a Christian, and uh, this book, Money, Greed, and God, goes through all of these different economic systems, and it covers the problems with all of them, and then it says that capitalism is actually the least worst system. It's actually, well, (laughs) there's a problem with every economic system because every economic system involves fallen human beings, and there's going to be trouble with fallen human beings no matter what system you put in place. But the best system or the least worst system is certainly capitalism, and he explains why socialism can never work, has never worked, And he points out several of the problems with it. So much of what I'm going to be saying here is drawn from that book, Money, Greed, and God by Jay Richards. But let's talk, let's let's start with a basic 30,000 feet definition of these different economic systems. Capitalism believes in private property, as you know. Socialism believes in government property. In fact, one of the definitions of socialism is that an economic and political theory that advocates collective or government ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. So the government comes in, it acquires the private property, it tries to run the economy from a top-down position. So capitalism involves private property, socialism involves government property, and communism involves communal property where there is no government. Now, technically speaking, there has never been a purely communistic country because if that were the case, there would be no government. It would just be a commune. So technically, uh, uh, nations like the Soviet Union were socialist where the government owned the property. They weren't completely communism because the government still existed, but Karl Marx wanted to get rid of the government ultimately and just have a commune. All right. So let's talk about this issue of socialism and communism. I just have four questions for people that think socialism and communism are a good thing. Here are the four questions just to get us thinking. The first question is, why does socialistic and communistic countries, I'm losing using communistic in a general sense here. It's, as I say, there's no government that has com- been completely communistic, but there's elements of it in the Soviet Union and Cuba and places, Venezuela, places like that. They're more socialistic than communistic. Anyway, here's our question. 
Why do socialistic and communistic countries often build walls to keep people in? Why do they do that? Second question. Why does the capitalist capitalist country of the United States have to build walls to keep people out? Or actually, we don't build them now. We take them down and let anybody in because everyone's trying to get here, right? Why is that? We don't have to build walls to keep people in. If we want to have secure borders, we might have to build walls to keep people out, but we don't have to build walls to keep people in. You know, Khrushchev, when he, when he built the Berlin Wall back, you know, 65 or so years ago, 60 years ago, uh, said that the wall was necessary to keep people out, <laughs> which was a total lie. It was exactly the opposite. He wanted to keep his people in. He knew people would flee to West Berlin if they could, and many of them tried to. Many of them paid with their lives trying to do that. The third question is this. Why are there no migrant caravans going from the USA to Venezuela? Why are they all coming from Venezuela to here? Why are they all coming from Latin America to here? Why are there no caravans going from the United States to there? That should give you a a hint as to which is the better system that brings more people out of poverty. It's not socialism. It's capitalism. Final question, just to get us thinking. Why are you unlikely to ever wash a rental car? Why? Have you ever washed a rental car? I, I never have. Have you ever washed a rental car? No, wh- why not? Because you don't own it. You don't really care. The only reason you would care is if you did own it and therefore wanted to take care of it. But if you don't own it, chances are you're not going to take care of it as well as if you do own it. This is why generally public housing is less well-kept than personal private housing. Because you don't own public housing. You don't own a rental car. You don't care. In fact, that's probably one of the problems rental car companies have. People abuse rental cars because they don't own them. You have to have ownership to increase people's interest in taking care of whatever you own. If you don't own it, you're probably not going to care about it as much. Now, if you really look at Marxism and socialism... These ideas that the government's going to take care of everyone and the government's going to own all the property and try and manage the economy from top down, it never works. In fact, Marxism has not only failed to promote human freedom, it has failed to produce food, said one economist. The great economist uh, Thomas Sowell put it this way. He said, socialism in general has a record of failure so blatant that only an intellectual could ignore or evade it. Think about that. Socialism in general has a record of failure so blatant that only an intellectual could ignore or evade it. And people ignore the actual history of socialism. They say, well, yeah, okay, I know it hasn't worked in the Soviet Union, hasn't worked in Cuba, hasn't worked in Venezuela, hasn't worked anywhere it's tried, but if we try it here, it'll work because we're good people. We can, you know, we... We, we can make it work because of our good intentions. And this is a complete misunderstanding of human nature, which we'll get to a little bit later. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Frank Turek filling in for Dan Celia. We're talking about socialism today. What is it and why doesn't it work? A.R. Bernard, pastor from uh, New York up in Brooklyn, uh, put, put it this way. He said, poverty is the norm and wealth is the exception. Think about that. Poverty is the norm and wealth is the exception. The only reason we Americans tend to think the opposite 
we tend to think wealth is the norm and poverty is the exception is precisely because we have a capitalistic system that is best at bringing people out of poverty. But around the world where you don't have this robust capitalism, poverty is the norm and wealth is the exception. You have to work in order to become wealthy. And you have to have a system that allows you to work and keep some of the fruits of your own labor in order to encourage that kind of work. If people are not encouraged to work, they won't, as we've noticed in the past couple of years. I don't know about you, but every place I go to, I see a sign, help wanted, now hiring. These businesses can't get people to work for them. Why? Because for the past two years, we've been paying people not to work. The government has been paying people not to work. And if you pay them not to work, guess what? Many people won't. They'd rather make 70% of what they used to make to stay at home than to make 100% and have to work for it. That's the problem. Because people are inherently going to decide to take the easy way if they can. You have to give them an incentive to work. And if you have an organization, or I should say a, a, a system that puts a rule of law in place and gives people the ability to keep some of the fruits of their own labor, you're going to get people out of poverty by incentivizing them to work and to be productive. But if you take incentives away, many people won't work. And we'll talk more about this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. We normally have a program on Saturdays at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, and we'll have that this Saturday as well. But today we're just filling in for Dan Celia, and we're talking about socialism. Why doesn't it work? So we'll cover more of that right after the break. Don't go anywhere back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, filling in for Dan Celia today. He's normally talking about finances, so I thought, hey, let's talk about finances from 30,000 feet. Let's talk about economic systems. What's the right economic system? Is it capitalism? Is it socialism? What is it? That's what we're talking about today. By the way, this particular topic we're talking about in a bigger context uh, at crossexamine.org, which is our website, uh, we teach online courses, and we're about to teach a brand new course called Jesus versus the Culture. Who do you trust? Do you trust Jesus or do you trust the culture? And one of the issues that the culture seems to be leaning toward is this idea of socialism. And so we have three actual one-hour shows on the economics of socialism or capitalism. Which should we go with? In this course, we're also covering cancel culture. How should you respond when threatened? What's the purpose of life? What did Jesus tell us about politics? What does it really mean to be free? We talk about critical race theory. What's your true identity? Can the Bible be trusted? Equality versus equity, progressive Christianity. We cover biblical justice versus social justice, sex and love, and a whole bunch of other topics in Jesus versus the culture. So if you go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you'll see it there. This course, I think, starts next month. I think it starts in, in... March. Yeah, March 7th. Uh, So check it all out there at crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. This is a big issue. I mean, obviously, economics. Economics affects everything we do, if you think about it. Economics affects everything we do. It affects the church. It affects missionaries. Money does. I mean, it, it affects ministries, facilities, families, children, friends, connections, health, manpower. It, it, it affects education. It affects our ability to print Bibles and books and send them out. It, it, it Money also 
uh, helps us with our media reach, with our cultural impact, with our communication, with our influence. It affects the gospel. Can you really put the gospel out there without finances? It's hard to do. You need finances to do it. And that's why economic systems are important. America has been able to export the gospel so many places because it's been a system, it has a system that's been able to create wealth. And later in the program, if we can, we'll get to what Jesus said about all this. And if we don't get to it today, we'll get to it tomorrow. Uh, but let's get back to our, our comparison of uh, capitalism and socialism. We were, we, we were talking before the break how poverty is the norm and wealth is the exception. We only think that wealth is the exception and poverty is the norm. I'm sorry. We only think that, that wealth is the norm and poverty is the exception because we live in America. And we have this economic system. But this economic system is the very thing that creates wealth. How do you create wealth? You give people the, an incentive to work and the opportunity to keep some of the fruits of their own labor. If you don't do that, you're not going to get economic growth. You're not going to get people out of poverty. Winston Churchill, who saved civilization in World War II, put it this way, and he, he, he actually said this in a talk to the House of Commons about five or six months after World War II. He said, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. The inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. So he's being a little sarcastic here, but you get the point. Socialism leads to misery, and people think that's a virtue. You know, oh, if everybody's equally miserable, that's better than if some people have more than others. Well, as we'll see later, Jesus points out that not everyone's going to have the same. Not even, not now, and not even in heaven, people are going to have the, they're not going to have the same. There's not equity in heaven. We'll get to that later if we can. And Churchill actually said this as well. He said, socialism is the philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. Yeah, it seems to be motivated by that, right? If somebody has more than me, I'm mad. I want the government to take money from them and give it to me. It's the gospel of envy. And as you know, in these communistic slash socialistic countries in the past century, there have been anywhere from 85 to 100 million dead, just between Mao and Stalin. Here's what Jay Richards, the author of the book Money, Greed, and God, said about this. A couple things. He said, never has an idea had such catastrophic consequences. It illustrated a grim, simple equation. Extreme moral passion minus reality equals mass death. He's commenting here on Stalin and Mao. He went on to say this, did Richards. Socialism doesn't mean no one controls the property. It means the state must confiscate and control whatever property is in private hands. It must coerce and kill since most people don't willingly hand over their property to aggressors. The communists tried to draw heaven down to earth. They brought up hell instead. Unquote. Jay Richards from his book Money, Greed, and God. And one of the problems, in addition to the biggest problem, you're, they murdered so many people. But one of the problems, just from an economic standpoint, is that socialism ignores economics 101. The first thing they ignore is private property. You need private property because it drives economics, as we said before. If you have the ability to keep the fruits of your own labor, 
then you are going to be incentivized to work. If you don't, you might not be incentivized to work. So private property is essential for bringing people out of poverty. If you don't have private property, if the government controls everything, you're not going to be incentivized to work. The second thing socialism ignores regarding economics 101 is the rule of law. You've got to have a rule of law where people are going to feel secure if they if they invest in an economy. If there's no rule of law, if people can confiscate your investment, if too much money is taken in taxes, if you can't be assured that risk is going to be minimized, that there's not too much corruption out there, you're never going to invest, which means wealth is not going to be created, which means jobs are not going to be created, which means people are not going to come out of poverty. So you need a rule of law. Security goes up when you have a rule of law and harm goes down. These countries with socialism, they actually just take care of the elites at the top and corruption is through the rest of society. You can just look at Venezuela as an example. Venezuela used to be one of the richest countries. Now it's one of the poorest because they went to a socialistic model. And now just the people at the top are taken care of, while many people at the, uh, the, the, or the rest of the people in, in the country are struggling. Many of them are starving. There's no security to invest. There's no reason to invest if the government owns all the property. You have no incentive there. The third thing that socialism ignores about Economics 101 is that free enterprise increases value. I'll just give you a simple illustration of this, and this has been done in schools before. A teacher, a teacher will hand out uh, different toys to different kids. You know, little stuff like, okay, you remember those toys you used to get when you were a kid? I mean, I'm 60 years old now, so maybe I'm dating myself. But, you know, you might get jacks and a ball. You might get the, you know, the paddle with the ball. You might get a, a, a deck of playing cards or you might get marbles or, uh, you know, just just a little toy like that, a little thing. So the the... the the teacher would just assign these toys to different kids, maybe a doll, maybe a, a G.I. Joe. Remember the old G.I. Joes or trucks or matchboxes? They, they just arbitrarily assign these toys. And then they would ask the kids, on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you with your toy? And so kids would assign a value. Oh, this is a 3, you know, or this is a 7, I like this, or this is a 10, I love this, or this is a 1, I hate this, right? And then they add up all the scores of all the kids in the class. So the, so the teacher assigns the toy, and then they add up all the scores, right? Then they would say, okay, now you can trade. You can trade between, between you and your friends. So if you don't like your toy, you can trade it for one you do like. So the kid that, the boy that got the doll doesn't want the doll. He wants the matchbox. The girl that got the matchbox wants the doll. So now they trade, Right? Then they would ask, now tell me how you value your toy. And the collective value went up. Why? Because trading made them more satisfied with what they had. The free enterprise made them more satisfied with what they had. Now, notice there's no new products being created. None. Zip. Zero. The same amount and type of products were in that little market. But just giving people the ability to trade made value, made their value for the toy they did have go up. This goes to show you the government just can't tell you what you value. 
You've got to have the ability to act to, to acquire what you want and then the ability to trade it with others. That will drive up value, and socialism ignores that. Socialism says the government is going to produce what you want, even though you don't really want it. The government's just going to give you what, you what they think you want, but they don't know what you want. So socialism ignores that. Socialism also ignores Economics 101 in that they don't seem to realize that competition motivates innovation and quality. I mean, if there's competition, things get better. If there's no competition, things don't get better. This is one of the problems with our public schools. It's a monopoly. The teachers' unions don't want competition because that's going to require them to compete in the open market with other schools and they don't want that they want to keep the status quo the teachers unions are there to serve the teachers not education they're not there to improve education to the students they're there to protect the teachers from competition now if there was school choice which is one thing everyone should have you would see how much better schools would be if parents could take their tax dollars and take them to any school they wanted to, you would see how much education would improve. It improves everything in the free market. Why wouldn't it improve? Why wouldn't it improve education? It would. I mean, you can do so at the college level. You can choose whatever college you want to go to. So you get a variety there. Of course, tragically, many colleges now are sold over to the left because they're a self-selecting group. They give tenure to people they only want to give tenure to, but there are exceptions out there. you got places like Liberty and Houston Baptist and Hillsdale and colleges like that that you can actually choose to go to at the college level or High Point University, not far from me. These are places that aren't sold out completely to the left. In fact, many of them are devoted to the truth, devoted to conservatism, some devoted to the Bible. That's what the free market will give you. But if the government comes in and says, you have to do this and you have to do that, you don't get that freedom. You don't get that competition. You don't get that improvement. Socialism ignores all that. So if it ignores all that, it's not going to be the best system. It's not going to be the most efficient system. It's not going to be the system that gives you the best results. It's not going to be the system that brings most people out of poverty. It's going to be the system that keeps them in poverty and gives them no way out. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, filling in for Dan Celia, who's sick. Please pray for Dan. We hope he can come back soon. Uh, by the way, our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it. We have a show on every Saturday at 9 Central, 10 Eastern. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, filling in for Dan Celia today. We're talking about, really, economics from 30,000 feet. We're comparing capitalism and socialism here. And we've been going through a number of reasons why socialism doesn't work. So far, it ignores private property. It ignores the rule of law or it doesn't provide a good rule of law. It ignores the fact that free enterprises or free enterprise increases value. It ignores the fact that competition motivates innovation and quality. And the fifth thing that socialism doesn't understand is that self-interest and service drive an economy, not greed. They think it's greed. And this goes back to Adam Smith. 
Adam Smith, you may know, wrote the book, I think back in 1776, if I'm not mistaken, uh, wrote uh, an amazing book on economics in which he said, uh, well, actually, here's the title of the book, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. So he's trying to figure out why are some nations more wealthy than others? And he did this back in 1776. And here's what he said. You know, a lot of people think it's greed that, that drives capitalism. No, here's, here's what Adam Smith says. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, or the brewer. I'm sorry. Let me start again. It is not from the benevolence. There's a lot of bees in this one. <laughs> it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Exactly. Look. If, if a butcher, brewer, or baker wants us to buy their products, then they're going to have to make sure those products are appealing to us. And they do so because they're interested in getting uh, our revenue so they can then live a life where they can buy other things and take care of themselves and their family. It's not out of greed that they're trying to get us to buy their products. Even if they have a greed motive, that's not what's going to get me to buy their product. They can be as greedy as they want. The only way I'm going to buy their product is if I want what they have. And the only way you're going to do that is if you want what they have. So what do they have to do? They have to make the product attractive to us. And that's what motivates good products. That's what motivates an economy. They have to do something to make the product attractive to buyers. Now, the government can't do this. The government doesn't really care if they make their products attractive to buyers because they're not getting any benefit if, if, if people buy their products. But if a private industry or a private citizen has a business and he wants to feed his own family, he's got to do something to make buyers want to buy what, what, what he has. So he's operating out of self-interest, not necessarily out of greed. He wants to make sure that he can feed his own family, so he's got to make these products attractive. And that's what socialism ignores. The sixth thing that socialism ignores about Economics 101 is something Adam Smith called the invisible hand. There's, there's a kind of invisible hand in the market. And here's how... Here's how Smith put it. He said, every individual intends only his own security. And he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which, no, which was no part of his intention. By pursuing his own interests, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. I have never known much good done by those who affected to trade for the public good. Now, what does he mean by this? What he means is, is that we don't know how this works, but somehow people come together to create products and services that other people need, even though they only have a little piece of the puzzle. And let me give you an example of this. There is nobody at Apple right now that knows how to make an iPhone. But wait a minute, what, what are you talking about, Frank? There's people at Apple making iPhones all the time. Yes, but there's no one person that knows how to do it. There is no one person in the world right now that knows how to make an iPhone from scratch all the way to 
a completed iPhone. It takes thousands of people doing what they do every day to come together by some sort of invisible hand that somehow brings forth what we now know as an iPhone. There is nobody out there that knows how to mine all the materials necessary, that knows all the electronics, that knows all the computer technology, that knows the, 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 uh, the 5G technology, that knows all the software, that knows everything about from, from scratch to an iPhone. There's nobody out there that knows how to do it. But somehow it happens. Why? Because if someone has an idea, they want to create something like this, they're building on pre-existing knowledge that other people have developed, and then they start putting out requests. Hey, does anyone know how to do this? Hey, does anyone know how to do that? Does anyone know how to make an app? Anyone know how to, does anyone know how to create circuit boards? Does anyone how to, and before you know it, people, thousands of people come together who don't know one another, who not even probably speak in the same language in many cases, who are from different countries in remote, par- remote parts of the world, somehow this all comes together, and yet there's no one person in the world that knows how to do it. In fact, there's no one person in the world that knows how to make a pencil. What? A pencil? Yeah, a pencil. What do you have in a pencil? You got wood. You got graphite. You got uh, a grommet on the top. You got a rubber eraser at the end of it. You have some writing on the side of the pencil. Okay, is, is there anybody listening to me right now that knows how to mine graphite? I mean, if you had no tools, where would you go to get graphite? How would you get it out of the ground? How would you process it? So, and then how would you get it in the, in the wood, in the pencil? How would you do that? Where do you get the grommet from? Where do you get the rubber from? Do you, you, do you know how to create all that stuff from scratch? Nobody does. This is why a top-down system can't work. There's nobody with the knowledge. There's nobody with the incentive. There's nobody who can do all this from the top down. This is why a top-down socialistic system doesn't work and can't work. There's nobody in the government that can, that can direct all this. There's nobody in the government that can, that, that can direct the manufacture of a pencil, much, much less an iPhone or a computer or a satellite. You need the free enterprise to do this. And this is why it's foolish, by the way, to put all the power in the hands of government. It's foolish to put all the money in the hands of government. In fact, Elon Musk, you know Elon Musk. Elon uh, is the uh, CEO of Tesla and also the CEO of SpaceX. The richest man in the world. And here is a very insightful comment by Musk. And Before we play it, let me set it up about capital allocation. In other words, he's about to tell us that the best place to put money, if you have excess money, is in the hands of private individuals, not the government. Because you see, the government wants to take your money. They're always wanting to tax people who who make a lot of money, and they want to take that money and run the government. Now, obviously, they need tax revenue to run the government. But what Musk's point here is, as you'll hear, it's only a 40-second clip, is that the most efficient use of money is not in the government sector. It's in the private sector. So here's what Elon Musk had to say about this. You know, at some point, really what you're doing is capital allocation. So you're not it's not money for personal expenditures. It's it, what you're doing is, is capital allocation. And it, it does not make sense 
to take uh, the, the job of capital allocation away from people who have demonstrated great skill in capital allocation and give it to uh, you know, an entity that has demonstrated very poor skill in, in capital allocation, which is the government. Uh, I mean, you can think of the government essentially uh, as a corporation in the limit. Uh, it, it is, it is a, the government is simply the biggest corporation with a monopoly on violence and, with, and where you have no recourse. Can so how much money do you want to give that entity? He's, someone jumped in and said, can you explain that last part again? Yeah, it's, it's a corporation with a monopoly on violence and you and you have no recourse. Well, you have some recourse. You can vote and all that. But generally, yeah, you're pretty powerless against a big government if they want to come after you, if they want to take your money from you. Now, again, they have to take some money. We get that. We need tax money to run a government. But what must brilliant point is is that if you really want to create wealth you need to keep as much money in the private sector as possible because those are the people that are going to invest those are the people that are going to create businesses those are the people that are going to create products those are the people that are going to create services those are the people that are going to create jobs the government doesn't create anything the government just moves money around from one person to another the government the best thing the government does, and probably it's something only the government could do, would be to protect innocent people from evil. And that is why you have a police force. That's why you have Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and, and Coast Guard, and the Space Force now. Because you need to protect innocent people from evil. And if you don't protect innocent people from evil, then no economy is going to work. So that's an essential role of government. And that's what Paul says in Romans 13, as you know, that the government bears the sword for a reason to protect innocent people from evil. But when the government starts getting involved too much in the economy and it tries to move money around, it doesn't do as efficiently as the private sector. This is why, you know, uh, who was it? Elizabeth Warren, the senator from New Hampshire. I think she's from New Hampshire. Or is it Massachusetts? She's up there in the Northeast somewhere. Anyway, she went after Elon Musk and called him a freeloader. And Musk said in an interview he did with the Babylon Bee, which you should watch. In fact, we did a podcast on this a couple of weeks ago. Musk said, if, if someone could die from irony, Elizabeth Warren would be dead for saying what she said. Musk, a freeloader? Do you know that Elon Musk this year is going to pay more in taxes? It's going to be in the billions. <laughs> more in taxes than any human being in history ever paid to any government. He's a freeloader. He's creating thousands of jobs and new products and new technologies. Whether you like the guy or not, that's not my point. The point is, is he's out there adding to the economy. He's out there creating wealth. He's out there bringing people out of poverty. And Elizabeth Warren, who makes $174,000 a year, hasn't created one single job because she's a government official. Now, her position is necessary, don't get me wrong, but... It's Musk who's creating all the value, not Elizabeth Warren. That's why he said, if Elizabeth Warren could die from irony, she would be dead right now. So, this invisible hand, which somehow, we don't know how all this works, but it does, this invisible hand brings people together because they all have an incentive to create a product or service so they can feed their own families, it brings people together to bring forth wealth and products and great stuff that we all want and need. And the government can't do that. You can't do that from a top-down perspective. Nobody has the knowledge. Nobody has the time. Nobody has the motivation to do it. It's impossible. And that's what socialism ignores. All right, you're listening to me, Frank Turek. 
Our website, crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it.org. Check out our app too, crossexamine, two words in the app store. And we're back in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, filling in today for Dan Celia, who please pray for Dan. He's trying to recover from an illness right now. He will not be here this week, so I'm filling in the inadequate uh, guest host. But I'm doing my best to talk about socialism today. And capitalism, since Dan talks quite a bit, as you know, about financial issues, I thought we'd look at this from 10,000 feet. So we've been through a number of reasons why socialism doesn't work. It ignores economics 101. Uh, By the way, I'm reminded uh, years ago uh, there was an interaction between the prime minister of England, Margaret Thatcher, and the the president of the Soviet Union, Miguel uh, Gorbachev, just before the wall fell. Uh, And it was in the late 80s. And at one point, the uh, uh, head of the President Gorbachev of the Soviet Union looked at, at um, Thatcher and said, How did, who, who sees to it that the British people get fed? And Thatcher looked at him and said, no one. She said, the price system does that. Yeah, the price system, they were, the economic system, the fact that we have a free enterprise here. The government doesn't feed the people. The people feed themselves because they have incentive, their own self-interest in a free society to actually make a living and take care of themselves. So this is the seventh thing now that socialism ignores about Economics 101, and that is the free rider problem, the fact that we have a sin nature. And a good example of this, by the way, is are the pilgrims. When the pilgrims came over to the United States, well, it wasn't the United States at that time, but, you know, the new land here. Um, William Bradford decided he was going to try and farm via commune, that they would just have a, a communal field and everyone would chip in to actually grow the food and they thought they would have enough food doing that. Well, they nearly starved the first year they tried to do that because people didn't have an incentive to work as much. If their neighbor was going to go out and tend to the field, why should I do it, right? Well, it didn't tend to motivate people to do what they needed to do. So the second year, Bradford said, look, we're not going to do the communal thing anymore. I'm going to assign a plot of land to each person. You're going to be able to take care of your own land, and whatever you grow, you get to keep and eat. Well, they had more than enough food the next year. Why? Because he understood human nature. He understood that people need to be incentivized to work, otherwise they won't, because we have a sin we have a sin nature problem. We're, we tend to be lazy if we can be. But if we're motivated to work, then we're going to be productive. And this, of course, is one of the problems with welfare that never brings you to work. It makes people dependent on the government rather than taking an initiative themselves to improve their own lot. You know, Marx famously said, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Well, the problem is, is that that doesn't work in the real world. My friend Neil Mammon, who has been on the American Family Radio Network before, put it this way. Here's the biggest problem. He said, socialism depends on people working as much as they can and only taking as little as they need. Yet, 
in reality, human nature is such that we work as little as we need and take as much as we can. Let me say that again from Neil Mauman. Socialism depends on people working as much as they can and taking and only taking as little as they need, yet in reality, human nature is such that we work as little as we need and take as much as we can. So if you don't understand human nature, then your economic system is going to be flawed. And that's the, that's the essential problem with socialism. It misdiagnoses human nature. It thinks people are going are gonna to work a lot and only take a little, when in fact they're going to work a little and take a lot if they're given that opportunity. And of course, this is the biblical worldview. Jesus himself points out that we have evil hearts. He says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. He said this in Matthew chapter 7. So, socialism ignores what we call the free rider problem. Socialism, number eight, also ignores the ripple effect. What do I mean by the ripple effect? The ripple effect is, is we don't live in a static society. We don't live in a static society. If you change one law, it's going to ripple to affect behavior in other areas. For example, tax rates. It was known and still is known that if you decrease tax rates... To a certain extent, you can't decrease them to zero, obviously. But the tendency is that if you lower tax rates, you're actually going to increase revenue to the government. Why? Because if you leave more money in people's hands, as Elon Musk pointed out in the last segment, they're going to asset their capital more efficiently than the government. They're going to invest. They're going to create jobs. They're going to create commerce. They're going to bring the economy up, which means with more exchanges in the economy and more people creating wealth, more money is going to be sent to the government in forms of taxation, even though the rate is lower. But if you increase rates too much, you're going to bring less money into the government because you're going to depress the economy. You're going to be, you're going to depress incentive for people to actually invest. You're going to lower the number of people working, which means you're going to lower the number of people paying taxes. And people who advocate socialism often don't understand that. They don't understand the ripple effect. They think everything's static. This is true with minimum wage. You know, people are, are saying, oh, minimum wage ought to be $15 now. Well, why stop at 15 Why not make the minimum wage $100? Why not? Shouldn't people get $100 for what they do? Um, what would happen if, if we made the minimum wage $100? It would destroy the economy. Nobody could work because nobody could afford to pay people to work for them. Which means if they tried to do that, they'd have to jack up prices so high inflation would go through the roof. In other words, there's a ripple effect. And a lot of people who get in economics don't seem to understand that. The ninth thing that socialism ignores about Economics 101 is supply and demand. You can't dictate demand. This is why you can't have a top-down economy, or another reason you can't have a top-down economy. The government just can't tell people what they want. (laughs) If the government gets out of the way, then people can create what they want. But you can't tell people, you're going to buy... You're going to buy a million pairs of Nike sneakers this year. And we're going to make them. No. 
The economy needs, the private sector needs to do that. You're going to buy 2 million servings of Brussels sprouts in your community this year. No, we don't like Brussels sprouts. No. Let us decide what we're going to eat. You can't tell us what we want. And socialism ignores that. Socialism also ignores scarcity. A lot of people say, well, why are quarterbacks paid so much more than teachers? As if that's somehow unfair. One of the reasons quarterbacks are are paid so much more than teachers is because there are so few quarterbacks that can play on the 32 teams in the NFL, and you've got to be really skilled to do that. It's a very scarce profession, and it's a high demand for it. People love football. They want to see it. Not that teaching isn't important. It's supremely important. In fact, in my view, it's more important than quarterbacks teaching good teachers. But that doesn't mean we can pay teachers $45 million a year and only pay quarterbacks 70000 a year. You would have nobody wanting to play quarterback, at least nobody as good as the people we have playing it now. And you have so many teachers that you couldn't pay anyway $45 million a year. It just wouldn't work. In other words, scarcity and desire is what runs an economy. Not necessarily what you think people should want in an economy. Of course we want people to teach our kids. But teaching our kids, while it's a noble profession, a lot of people can do it. Playing quarterback, not a lot of people can do it. So there's a lot of reasons, friends, why socialism doesn't work. I just gave you 10 of them. Let me review them. Number one, it ignores that private property drives the economy. Number two, it normally doesn't put in a good rule of law that allows security to be such that people will risk investing in an economy. Number three, it ignores the free enterprise. It ignores the fact that free enterprise increases value. Number four, it ignores competition that motivates innovation and quality. Number five, it misunderstands that self-interest and service drives the economy, not greed. Number six, it knows nothing of the invisible hand. You can't top down decide that you're going to produce X and everybody's going to want it. In fact, you can't top down produce things that are so complicated, you need an invisible hand to produce them. Number seven, it ignores the free rider problem that people, due to their sin nature, are going to do very little to try and get a lot. They're not going to do a lot to get a little. It ignores the ripple effect, number eight, that one thing affects other things in the economy. Number nine, it ignores supply and demand. Supply and demand can't be dictated. It's got to be the product of people wanting certain things, and the government just can't tell you what you want. And number 10, it ignores the concept of scarcity. Scarcity is what makes things more valuable if the things that are scarce are wanted than just morality. You just can't say, well, teachers are more important than quarterbacks, so we're going to pay teachers $45 million a year and quarterbacks $70,000. You, you just can't arbitrarily do that. Now, a lot of people will say that, oh, well, um, the early church, they lived like a commune. It was like a socialistic thing, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. If you go to Acts 5, first of all, Acts 5 is mostly a description, not a prescription. It describes what people did. It's not prescribing what we have to do. Number two, the Bible presupposes private property. Thou shalt not steal presupposes you have the ability to own private property. Number three, Annas and Sapphira, the people that were punished, they were punished for lying, not for withholding private property. 
And number four, the government wasn't involved. The sharing in Acts chapter 5 was voluntary. This was not a prescription. It was a description. It was a unique event that is never commanded to be the norm elsewhere. All right, friends, check us out at crossexamined.org. That's our website. My name is Frank Turek, filling in for Dan Celia. And I'll see you here tomorrow, Lord willing. Don't forget to pray for Dan. God bless.